0: You're listening to the Sportsman's Nation Podcast Network brought to you by Onyx Maps. Now, if you haven't had the opportunity to get Onyx Maps on your phone, you need to get Onyx Maps on your phone. And I'm going to tell you why. Number one. I am the kind of guy who likes to know where I'm at at all times. And I like to do a lot of running and gunning. So there's times where access is very important for me. Knowing where I was at, knowing how to get to a specific location, especially in the dark of morning or night, getting in and getting out. And the best part for me is that I have GPS on my phone. And Onyx allows you to leave basically breadcrumbs uh, and leave a trail or your access routes on your phone, save those access routes, and then use your GPS going in and out of your tree stand locations every single day. And it's awesome because you won't get lost in the dark. And I use that so much That little portion in itself so much throughout the season that uh, it's probably the most useful function of that app. Now, you can also leave waypoints like where your trail cameras are at, where your tree stands are at, where you see scrapes and rubs or marking trailheads or campsites. This is the perfect app for a do-it-yourself hunter. I mean really for all hunters because it allows you to journal your properties that you hunt, right? And uh, the more information you have, the more successful you will be on a yearly basis because you keep gathering data and gathering data and gathering data. And soon you'll see trends in that data and those trends will lead you to hunting more efficiently and becoming more successful in my opinion. So go to Onyx. Or wherever you download your apps, pick up Onyx, and you can use the discount code NATION20, Nation Twenty, N A T I O N Twenty, and save twenty percent off for first-time users. Onyx Maps.
1: Welcome to the DIY Sportsman Podcast with your hosts Garrett Prahl and Boudreaux Boswell. On today's episode, I interviewed Ted Bright. You may know Ted either from forums or Facebook pages, or you may have even seen him pop up in the recent public land challenge that was run by the hunting public. We talk about his success this season. He shot two great bucks in public land in Missouri. And then we also talk about gear, climbing methods, public land strategy, all that good stuff. So to give the listeners a little bit of background, you're located in Missouri. Uh, How long have you been located there And I guess, have you always been hunting in that same type of habitat? Have you branched out at all or have you pretty much been kind of honing the same skills for, you know, many, many years? So I grew up in Pennsylvania
2: until I was 16, you know, hunting some in the mountains and, you know, living in the foothills and, and that area. And it was actually where I grew up was mostly, you know, foothill slash ag. So, you know, hunted a lot of cornfields and bean fields and such. Uh, Or, you know, on the edges of and, you know, the timber leading up to it. And then when I was 16, I moved to Missouri and I moved to that area where, uh, you know, where you went uh, with us on that trip this year. And uh, for that, you know, since 16, I lived there until just a few months ago when I uh, moved closer to St. Louis. So in the, uh, let's see, what would that be, Uh, uh, 25 years of living in the basically the foothills of the Ozarks uh it's been just a a constant progression you know I can remember when I was 16 and we moved out here I didn't see near the deer sign that I was accustomed to but in reality it was just the signs in different places and so you know it was a learning curve um and you know I've hunted a lot of public land and I used to have the negative connotation of public land and then you know as I evolved as a hunter and got more serious about it. You know, I was able to hunt some, uh, one particular decent piece of property that was about 800 acres and that was private. And then, uh, you know, once I started getting good, it was like, uh, well, the, the challenge wasn't, uh, good enough, you know, and I really wanted to start, uh, you know, branching out. And so I went back to my roots as a public land hunter. And this all coincided about the same time that I really undertook the beef tactics and saddle hunting not too long after that. So, you know, it was uh, a lot of things coming together at once, and it's, it's led to a lot better understanding of deer movement, deer activity, and, you know, it's led to great results as well.
1: Would you say that one of the biggest things that you had to overcome when you first kind of started to figure that, you know, portion of it out was – trying to get on deer without the, the ag fields to, to kind of observe or, you know, set up against.
2: Yeah. Yeah, definitely. That was definitely the case. And of course I was 16 years old, so, you know, I was younger, but um, you know, having just this vast, uh, you know, predominantly oak and history hickory forest uh, where acorns are abundant all over the place, you know, in the primary part of the season, um, you know, that's a lot tougher to hone in on, but, once you understand deer movement and, and how they, uh, you know, how they get up from their beds and and feed and um, what that travel route looks like typically, then it, it becomes a lot easier. But at 16, I didn't know that. So yeah, that was pretty, that was a pretty good learning curve.
1: Yeah. And in that habitat, you obviously got the, you got the, the rolling hills, you know, some steeper hills and bluffs. And like you said, it's, a lot of the same it's almost like the tree type and the the forest type is very much monoculture outside of some of those creek bottoms at least in some of the places that i've you know scouted and hunted so far and to be honest i think it would be really tough to try and get on a good buck outside of the rut does that seem to be what you see also or have you been able to have great experiences obviously this year in late season you you shot a nice buck but what's kind of your experience with that
2: well that was exactly the case uh, you know, when you have a lot of different terrain features and you can, it just becomes easier to judge, you know, where the do are, where the activity is and, um, you know, versus the, like you said, the, um, the mono environment where it's every, everything is monotonous, it becomes a lot more difficult. There are no, you know, obvious funnels and it takes a lot more, uh, boots on the ground takes a lot more knowledge and skill set to, to piece it together where they are but especially with the buck. you know um, i'm sure buck is typically not going to be bedded in one of those areas so once you kind of understand that then you can start to find transition lines uh even within this big huge you know monolithic forest there's going to be something but when you first are when you're new at that and you first step foot in those woods it can it just looks like a vast overwhelming uh, monotonous, nothing, you know what I
1: mean? Yeah, definitely. Um, and I could even picture, you know, when Sam and I were out there walking in that forest the first day, I think we had covered, I think it was like three miles before we even cut a fresh track, just doing that some of that scouting, which is very atypical from what we'd get up here. Um, I'd say deer sign wise, um, and some of the public land up by us, I don't know if the population is different or all, if, if it was just, you know, difference in habitat, but usually we don't have any any problem finding deer sign in the public land, uh, up here in Minnesota, at least around the the twin cities areas. Uh, but we do have a bit more hunting pressure than what we had down there.
2: Yeah. I mean, that was, that was really an interesting time to be hunting there. And, I, well, first of all, it was fascinating. I was, you know, three miles deep in one of my, uh, one of my best haunts over the years and all of a sudden I'm, I'm riding the e-bike down this trail and, uh, all of a sudden there's the DIY sportsman and his wife sitting on a log right next to the trail that I'm riding by three <laughs> miles deep in public land. It was hilarious. Uh, but to your point that that trip was so interesting because the first two days that Saturday that, that I saw you guys, I guess it was like three and a half miles deep. And then that Sunday was, you know, above average temperatures. Uh, it just wasn't conducive. I, I don't think we saw hardly any deer. And I agree, the sign looked uh, dismal at best. And then what that I had to leave to go out of town for work, and a cold front came through, and it just turned it on a dime. And you guys were seeing deer every day, and I think that uh, the sign coincided with that also, if, if I remember right from hearing from you guys.
1: Yeah, well, I would probably expand on that too to say that I don't think we saw maybe a huge increase in sign in some of those those areas that we were originally focusing on when we started scouting at first it was, Hey, let's run the ridge lines and look for, you know, rubs or or tracks or scrapes up on some of these logging roads, um, that we can kind of extrapolate and then find pinch points near where we expect there to be bedding. But there just wasn't that much sign up high. And I don't think that really changed a whole lot. Once that cold front came through, what we ended up finding was that, the deer had kind of congregated in these little pockets in some of the lower ground areas, and that was where there was really a high concentration of sign, uh, more thick cover, and that's where we, I think, a lot of the people started seeing a lot more deer. And I don't know if that was just because yeah, the no. acorns were, you know, mostly done by exactly. that that point in time. Yeah,
2: exactly. Uh, you know, I've I've hunted that area for years during that time frame, and it's it's all predicated upon the acorns. You know, it's not a. a you know, I flip the switch, all of a sudden the acorns are gone, but it, it's a little more gradual. But uh, that was one of the more, that's one of the earliest I've seen where that switch was almost completely flipped, where, you know, there, there was just very little hard timber deer activity and it was all concentrated in the lower lying areas where there's some sort of green vegetation.
1: So if you had a more typical year where there were still acorns kind of littering all the forest floor, would you anticipate seeing a lot more deer activity up higher in the hills and maybe not so much down low?
2: No question about
1: it. Does that make it harder? Do you think? I mean, I kind of felt like we walked in on a perfect storm, um, with the rut coinciding with that change in food source really congregated the deer, congregated the deer, I think a lot more than, um, I would have expected if they were kind of moving up high in the hills.
2: Yeah, spot on. Definitely. It was the perfect storm uh including the storm that came through and dumped a little bit of snow and uh the you know it was just a, a drastic cold front that had you know, just worked out well you guys saw I, I was getting texts while i was out of town for work and it was uh a continuous barrage of <laughs> saw a nice buck saw a nice buck you know uh, oh yeah two bucks well uh, you know it was uh just excellent deer activity and it was it was that perfect storm because you can't expect to get that type of, uh, uh, that level of a hunt, you know, every time you go, you know, on an out of state hunt, because that was, like you said, it was the perfect storm.
1: Yeah. I think it was a good hunt to, uh, especially have the wife tag along with. Cause I think she had a blast. Yeah.
2: Yeah. It was really enjoyable watching the footage and it was pretty extreme. I think that the high that day was like 15 degrees on that Monday, right? Or was that Tuesday. The
1: Tuesday was the cold day and we pretty much stayed inside that day. Uh, but it was, it was windy the day before, but it was closer to 30 degrees of that snow. So it wasn't too terribly bad.
2: Yeah. Yeah. But, you know, just as far as the, the rut in general this year, it was, I would say I would classify it as probably the most atypical rut that I can remember in, you know, since I've really delved into, uh, you know, understanding this type of stuff to a high level, I I never saw high intense rut activity until my goodness. It was this the only time I, the first time I saw a buck chasing the doe was the second weekend of rifle season in Missouri. So that would have been around November the 20th or so. You know, I guess the, uh, the first Saturday was the 16th. So it would have had to have been the 23rd. Yeah. I only saw, a, uh, I saw a buck chasing the doe, and that was up here closer to St. Louis, where I live now, on the 23rd. And then on December the 6th, I saw a buck mounting a doe. And that was it. You know, usually you can I can count days in a row I'll see some sort of chasing activity. And I just never saw that this year.
1: Yeah, December 6th, that makes me wonder if it was just an oddball, very late, you know, end of the bell curve or if that was kind of, you know, some second rut activity already by that time?
2: Well, you know, I'm learning a whole new area and all new deer where I live now. You know, we moved up here over the summer and what I've noticed is it's, uh, it's just totally different. There's there's a lot more deer and the buck to doe ratio is a lot different than where we were hunting, uh, that, that second week in November or third week, whatever it was. Um, so. I wasn't surprised at all to see that because there's no possible way that the amount of does there are around here could have all been bred in the typical time frame. So it really just didn't surprise me at all.
1: Gotcha. So the ratio is not as good as where it was where we were at.
2: Right, right. Like, for example, you know, the buck that I killed down there on the last day of that trip after you and Sam had already left, um, I had, I used a, a, the Montana decoy, the Dreamy Doe decoy. And, I, I went ahead and tried it around here just to see and the does don't like it. And just <laughs> everything's on alert. You know, it just, it doesn't work out in, in an area where there's that many deer, that many does. specifically.
1: Gotcha. Do you have more, well, I guess Missouri in general, it didn't seem like there was a shortage of tags available. Is that true? Pretty much most of the state.
2: Yeah. Yeah. We're a two buck state and you know, you can kill one deer with a bow before firearm season, and then you can kill one during firearm season or with a bow or alternative weapon after firearm season. And then usually if you, if you, if you apply for the managed hunts, then about every three years, give or take, depending upon which hunt you uh, apply for, you can get a third buck tag. And that was, I was fortunate enough to get that this year No, I haven't punched that third tag yet, but I was fortunate enough to punch two buck tags with my bow.
1: Yeah, I'd say it'd be hard to complain in your your situation right now.
2: Yeah, yeah. No, it's uh, Missouri has we've got a pretty good thing going. You know, it's uh, it's interesting. There's a lot of people in Missouri that complain about when rifle season is, and sure, you know, growing up in Pennsylvania, I'd rather see it after in closer to the late season or after Thanksgiving. But the reality is is that Missouri has a little bit of a different model. We've got a lot of deer, and we use it as a good revenue generator. Uh, and we have an excellent conservation department, uh, largely in part because of that. So, you know, I mean, if everybody had their way, there, it, it
1: just wouldn't make any sense
2: at all anyway. So it works out pretty good the way it is. There's plenty of deer, and there's plenty of opportunity to kill mature bucks.
1: Yeah, it seems like it's a, a really good option, even as an out of state, out-of-stater. Or- um, especially when I compare it to something like Iowa, where you could argue it's more managed for trophy, but the opportunity is much, much less, and the tag cost is much, much higher. I can drive right through that whole state and still have a fantastic experience down in Missouri.
2: Yeah, exactly, and, you know, the, just the, the same for them. If Iowa tried to implement it the way Missouri does, they wouldn't have any deer left because, you know, everybody would go there. So, you know, it's uh, I, I think Aaron Warburton does an excellent job of outlining that in some of his... uh you know, he's answered that on on podcasts and everything, and his perspective is spot on, in my opinion. But basically, kind of the way I summarized it, you know, it's every state has different goals and objectives and different means to get there, and by and large, I think Missouri does a pretty good job.
1: Cool. Um, backing up to your first deer that you shot this year, which was what November fifteenth ish.
2: Yes, it would have been the day before rope season, November fifteenth.
1: Okay. So you mentioned you had the decoy on that hunt. Is that the was that the first time that you had kind of brought that out or have you experimented with that in the past prior to that hunt?
2: No, that was the first time ever using the Montana decoy.
1: And do you think it made a difference?
2: It or, absolutely made a difference.
1: So you don't think you would have killed that deer if, if he hadn't have seen the decoy and, you know, made a reaction to it, essentially?
2: I, uh, I can't say that I wouldn't have killed that deer just because I, I don't know how it would have transpired otherwise. He may have came right down the hill and it could have been easier, but he came right down the hill with his attention squarely focused on that decoy, which was the main reason why I wanted it, you know, because I knew it was going to be in tight quarters and I put it in a, you know, there was kind of a shelf that ran through that hillside on that in, in that bedding area and there were cedars above On the hillside, yep. And I, I wanted him to be able to see. You know, I I thought that there could be a buck bedding up there, and I wanted him to be able to see it from you know underneath the cedars, how you can see below them. Yep. uh, And and walk out like he did, and I didn't foresee that he would stop at the edge of the cedars for ten minutes drooling, and uh, I've got camera gear that's not working out, and leaning into my hip, and I got to cross over my bridge, and all of that. Uh, unfolding with 10 minutes of stand down, but um, it, it, it was able you know, it, it did distract him. And then he, after 10 minutes, he finally, you know, committed to moving towards the doe. And as soon as he did, I, the decoy did it. And as soon as he did, I, I came to full draw. And as I, he was just walking and I was just going to shoot him while he was walking because he was only at seven yards at this point. But I thought, no, nah, I better stop him, and as soon as I went to stop him, I mean, it was like on the verge of my tip of my tongue, he must have caught whiff of my ground scent from about four hours earlier. Mm-hmm. Not, not enough to make him run, but he he just kind of turned and bound off two steps, and as soon as he came to a stop, I just sent one of those kudus blaring right through the boiler house and got lungs and heart and watched him crash 30 yards later.
1: Nice. So when, when you were set up on that hillside there on that little bench, how far up the hill were you? Were you closer to the top of the hill or were you closer to the ravine or the valley floor?
2: I was closer to the the bottom because so I, I went into this area that I had, I, I rode through there one time during turkey, the previous turkey season, but I just rode through on my e-bike. Uh, never have I been in that area exploring it or scouting it on foot or anything. And I went in and, in the dark that morning on November the 15th, and I was hunting, you know, I, I hunted until about 10 o'clock, saw one little buck, and I just wasn't happy with where I was sitting. So I was actually going to just uh, ride the e-bike back to my vehicle and, and change parking lot and go to one of my go-to spots. Uh, but, you know, I, I just uh, talked myself out of it and just went for a quick ride real quick to scout before I did that. And I'm glad I did because I, you know, I, I wanted to check this particular area out. And it became obvious real quick with a, with a bunch of scrapes, you know, there's a really fresh opened up scrape line. Um, and, and, you know, you just kind of tell, you could picture it, the exact how it was related to the bedding. And the bedding was up, you know, probably about two thirds of the way up the hill, um, probably right around the transition, the top of the transition line of the feeders. And uh, so when I recognized that, you know, I also saw there's a ravine coming down where you've got two hillsides coming together. And it's, it's almost like a, a little hollow that comes down and it forms a transition area just before that scrape line. So naturally, you know, a, a mature buck is going to want to take that path of lower travel to, uh, to be able to catch the thermals to make sure that all is well on his way out there. And that's exactly what happened. You know, he, he came down the edge of that hillside where he could uh, catch the thermals. And that's when he saw the doe decoy and, you know, and I, and I put it on him. And then probably about 20 minutes after that, you know, I just sitting up there waiting and started taking down the gear and everything. And uh, about 20 minutes after, I on the opposing hillside of that, of that little hollow that ran down there, Another mature buck came down, and he went right down into that transition area. Um, the, the buck that I shot had uh, broken tine, and you could tell that he had been fighting quite a bit. And I suspect that those two had probably gone at it a couple times. And, uh, but it was just pretty cool to see that. You know, and this other buck was 25 yards away from me um, you know, right before uh, closing time. You know, I could have shot him easily. Uh, but it was just really cool to see the pieces all together like that, how two mature bucks in the same area did the same exact thing, just on opposing hillsides.
1: Yeah, that is pretty cool. So then when you had that, bu- that first buck come in, right, the, the thermals, were they being overridden by the the wind at that point? Um, or were your thermals going straight up and he was coming from more of the side of the hill. So you're able to just kind of stay, um, away from getting the thermals caught by that deer until he obviously like smelled your ground scent.
2: So I was facing my 12 o'clock was facing directly uphill.
1: Okay. And
2: the wind was coming from my, basically from my two o'clock to, you know, to my what seven or eight o'clock, whatever, you know, and then once the, uh, once the sun went down and the thermals took over that, that, pretty well shifted. And it was a, it was a calm breeze, but it was consistent, you know? And then once the, uh, once the sun went down and the thermal took over, it was just almost straight 12 to six, you know, just coming straight down the hill. Um, and then, uh, yeah, so he was, I, I just had everything in my favor, you know, there was, uh, when you can get the wind to jive with the thermals to jive with your access route that's what I call the trifecta. And when I can get those three things to align, I know that I have a high probability of making it happen if the buck is where I think he could be.
1: Yeah, I can think of a couple spots, even just from my memory of those maps, as we're looking down there, that would be kind of similar, maybe looking spots where you might expect a deer to come from up high and make his way down into one of those kind of hub type areas um, right when those thermals start dropping down.
2: Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, keep in mind, again, that wind was largely blowing down the hill. So that that automatically put him on the leeward side of, of the hill for, for ideal bedding that you, know, you would typically think of. Um, and the cedars were a perfect mask for me to get in there. And it was like a curtain, right? Yep. Um, I could get up in there and as long as he wasn't just on the other side of them uh, or in the middle of them, you know, I would be okay. And I thought I was far enough down the hill to where that would work and sure enough it did and then you know so my access route um the wind and the thermals all jiving allowed to it kind of you know again a little bit of a perfect storm scenario but it's if you shoot for that trifecta then your odds of getting busted are significantly less and you know because you a lot of people will consider the thermals and then and the wind but it also has to jive with the access route because if i had came in from the top side or even from the side side um you know there's a chance that that buck would have crossed my scent path and actually he, he did right there but i had been there you know four hours in advance and there was enough breeze and everything to where it was just a faint odor for
1: him you know right so then how did that contrast with how you got on your second buck closer to st louis
2: so the second buck was again that was a a managed hunt and i'd never uh, stepped foot on this place you know, how it goes, there's a couple of buddies that are in the group and that were, that were all drawn, including my son. And we'd talked several times about getting in there and scouting and everything, you know, and it just, you know, life happens, right. And, and other hunting takes priority. And I, so I'd never stepped foot in there and like the day before, two days before I started, you know, really honing in on some things on the computer, you know, cyber scouting. And then that night before, after I got all my stuff ready and everything, and we had the rendezvous um, hashed out, you know, my buddy Josh is going to meet me at my house at like 345, I think. And uh, so After we had all that hashed out, I, we just sat down and we talked on the phone and we just hashed out exactly what we wanted to do and we kind of went back and forth on it a little bit, but I was like, all right, I I feel pretty strongly that we should get back to the back corner. So this is a 900, you know, basically a thousand acre piece. And, you know, so it's, it's, it's just not all that big, Um, but the trails wind through there quite a bit. So by trail, it's a lot further than as a crow flies to get back to that back corner. But I just thought it seemed to make sense, you know, um, to get back as far as we can, because This is the first Saturday of the the draw hunt that started on December the 1st. And so there's going to be a lot of activity and it's mostly going to be, you know, um, between the parking lot and where we were. So it ended up working out great. We got back there way deep, way early. and, And basically, you know, what What I do in scenarios like that, and this worked out last year also where I'd never set foot on this place. I, from my computer i will draw a shape on onyx and then you know as i'm entering in the dark uh, once i approach that shape i start to look for a, you know a, a good looking area even in the dark though you can tell you can tell terrain features and you know you can even somewhat tell am i going to have good shooting lanes from that vantage point and uh, so that's what i did get all the way back there pull up my phone i can see that i'm approaching that area and uh, there was a watering hole there. And I thought, well, you know what, this is, you know, this is in my area that I had designated. And I might as well have another natural attractant there. So I, uh, I saw pretty close to that watering hole. And I didn't see any deer until 830. But at 830, uh, a really nice 10 pointer came in. And he was he was going towards the watering hole. And I was able to put a good shot on him at 18 yards, I think. And that, that's actually kind of the furthest one I've shot in a while. them have been all within about 13 yards as we were discussing before the, before the cast, but anyway, so yeah, it worked out pretty good on the cyber scouting and it's always an adventure going deep in public land.
1: So do you think that with that particular deer and the timeframe he came through, do you think he was just doing his thing? And that he would have done that even if there wasn't the first day of the draw hunt that day? Or do you think that other people, you know, moving around might have pushed him back into that area?
2: No, that was actually his natural, uh, because he came from like the back corner. Um, you know, I was kind of surprised by that, but yeah. So, you know, I, I put all this, you know, thought and tried to assign logic to it and that, you know, we were going to be pushed from the parking lot, but that's not actually how it went down. Um, you know, I mean, it all had to do, like as Zach Turnbull says, right, every step is a decision, right? So it all kind of comes together and it all, you know, plays a part in the decision-making as of where you you select your tree. But yeah, he came from the backpack corner and he was just getting a drink, you know, at 830 in the morning, but after getting down and, you know, during the tracking process and recovery and everything, and we did, actually did a little bit of scouting in between, um, it makes a little more sense now because, you know, it, in stark contrast to where we hunted Garrett, there was acorns all over the place. Huh. So, you know, as, as a food source goes, acorns are very dry. And if you've been sitting there munching on acorns for a few hours, you know, you're going to be thirsty. So it it makes a lot of sense. And there's a lot of sign around that, around that uh, pond. And I suspect it, you know, probably is in large part due to the, the vast number of acorns that are still on the ground, which I was shocked by, but sure enough.
1: Is there any creeks running through that area too, or is it just kind of that one pond was more of a centralized uh, water source? Yeah, exactly. Steep drainages um, and wet weather creeks, but no moving water. Okay. So then, for acorns, for you guys, um, what's the normal time frame in terms of like white oaks versus red oaks in? I'm assuming you guys have way way more red oak uh, type species than you do white oaks
2: well i typically what I see is that the white oaks will start dropping you know the first first week or two of September um, September the fifteenth is our archery opener by then white oaks are are dropping pretty pretty good pretty steady and they'll continue to drop for you know till till October one typically of course there's a you know variance and everything but Uh, then the red oaks really start to drop, you know, basically throughout the month of October and maybe not quite all the way through October, but, you know, at least the first three weeks typically. Um, Now I I wouldn't, I I don't know for sure that there would be a lot more white oaks than red oaks. I think it's more just, you know, you're going to see a higher concentration of white oaks on the tops, on the flats or on the ridge tops and you see more of the red oaks on you know northern hill slopes and in
1: the bottoms gotcha yeah i think that's that's probably fairly similar to what we have here i mean our dates are a little bit shifted but in terms of how you describe where those trees are usually located that's you know pretty well what i see too yeah so let's talk about your your hunting setup specifically a little bit um so Okay. When you you know even started out in Pennsylvania, when you first moved to Missouri, were you a fixed stand type of guy, or did you still kind of use a, a mobile strategy?
2: Uh, yeah, I, I started off in, uh, you know, framed up, hammer and nail, two by fours, whatever I could do to get in the tree. Definitely not OSHA approved. <laughs> <laughs> and then uh, my dad is, uh, he's a pipe fitter, you know, a welder by trade, and he, you know, in my late teens and in the twenties, you know, he would build aluminum tree stands. Uh, again, probably not the safest thing. And you know, I can't tell you how many times I climbed trees without using a safety harness. And you know, just uh, I feel a lot more fortunate for the people that come around into hunting today because we've got a lot better measures in place to ensure, uh, you know, safety and success at the same time. But so I, I've kind of evolved from, you know, the, the most rudimentary types of, uh, of handmade tree stands to I, I went, you know, I had a, a lone wolf climber as, as a younger adult and, you know, I had several, uh, you know, lock-ons and did all that. And the one of the turning points in my hunting career is definitely going to a saddle, you know, not having an inventory of tree stands and all of the, you know, constantly well i need to get another one to put in that tree and lugging those things around and moving them and ah, it's it's for the birds and anybody that has tried a saddle i think would almost invariably say that it's it's a lot more comfortable it's a lot more efficient it's a lot more effective it's a lot more tactical and it's just a heck of a lot more fun
1: are you using a you know, platform all by itself. Have you ever tried ring of steps? Do you supplement platform with ring of steps? How do you usually like to set up in the tree?
2: Uh, so I started off with the ring of steps and I, I, I thought that that was, you know, the cat's meow. I loved the idea of walking around the tree, but as I, you know, as I evolved as a saddle hunter, I thought, you know what, I'm going to try one of these predator platforms and sure enough, I mean, it's just, it's so much better in my opinion. The the biggest concern I had, which was maneuverability around the tree, was just it it, it became a non-issue once, it, you know, the issue wasn't that. The issue was me and this, this my newness to satellite and, you know, and not knowing how to pivot and twist and turn and use your body and use the leverage of the platform. Uh, because now I I don't even need any type of, external devices outside of the platform to shoot three hundred and sixty degrees on any tree that I can you know I don't even have to get my arms around it. Um it's just not an issue. You know, you can push off and pivot on the side of that platform and shoot three hundred and sixty degrees easily.
1: Do you like to run a, a higher tether or do you usually go a little bit lower? I uh,
2: I would be on the lower side of things and still don't have a problem with it with shooting three hundred and sixty degrees. Uh, I just find it a little bit more comfortable. Typically, I'm going to run my tether around neck height while standing on my platform.
1: Okay. So then, when you're when you sit back and lean, it's probably closer to head level then, or give or take. Yeah. Yep. yep. Gotcha. What uh, is your preferred climbing method?
2: Uh, I use Cranford on Steps with CMI etriez. I just electric tape them to it. And so I I use three of those. Uh, I've got one four-step, and I always put that one on the tree first, and then two three-step CMI etriers, and they're all attached. You know, I mean, they wad up to about the size of a softball, and I've got three of them. And then I have a three-step CMI etrier attached to the post of my predator platform as well. And when I use all three uh, steps and etriers, along with the ray on the predator platform, I can get to about 27 feet.
1: That's not too bad. Do you ever have any issues with uh, stability with all those, you know, I guess, movable loops that you're trying to fit your feet in?
2: Uh, No, no, not at all. Um, I mean, I guess you could say the extent of it, you know, becoming challenging or whatever, you know, sometimes in the dark, it's just, uh, you know, trying to find that, uh, you, you know, get your foothold in there. And if it's a crooked tree, you know, you might, especially in the dark, and you know, it might be a little bit of a challenge, but uh, it's just not really that big of a deal at all. And, you know, when you can lean back and use your lines and belt to your advantage, um, you know, I just don't really have any issues with it. My son has, my son is 17 and he climbs trees. He he has some normal sticks, but he also uses my, you know, cranford and etrier combos and, he doesn't no problem. Also, um, yeah, it just it works out really well. These three things pull up to the size of a softball, and they're light as could be.
1: Nice. Yeah, I was still trying to figure out the the perfect climbing method for Sam. Uh, for me, it seems like I can do just about anything I want in the early season and feel comfortable doing it. And then, as a function of the temperatures, it starts getting colder. I start getting a lot more conservative um, to the point where I won't even want to use aiders if it's super cold. Or I might just want to like yeah. almost even hunt on the ground if I can get away with it with the cover, um, but with with Sam, what we've been finding is that for her to have climbing sticks that have the spacing that she needs, four sticks get her like ten feet, so it's just not as it's not as effective. So we're and she's new enough, right, that I don't want to just give her like a, a this huge aider system to be able to figure out. So we're trying some some things to try and get creative, um, but I think we'll figure something out.
2: Yeah, yeah. I mean, I I agree with you. The the Aiders probably aren't for everybody, and you know, there's a certain amount of uh, uh, dexterity, I guess you could say. You know, it kind of probably comes a little more natural to guys like us that have been hunting our whole lives and climbing trees and everything like that. But um, so yeah, I could I could see where your dilemma is. But rest assured, there's something out there, right?
1: Yeah, definitely. Or she just needs to get a ghillie suit and get really good at that. <laughs>
2: Yeah, there you go. (laughs) But yeah, it's uh, I the the days of you know I I got away from tree stands because I don't like hauling around big hunks of metal, so I really don't like carrying sticks. But they're by far the easiest as far as attaching it to a tree and climbing. The actual climbing process, you know, sticks. I don't know that it gets any easier than sticks, but I really don't want to carry sticks around through the woods anymore. You know.
1: Yeah, that's definitely the big trade off and. I wish I could even say that I had one method that was my favorite and that I don't know that I have one. I always keep going back and forth and it's almost, it's almost kind of, it varies based on whatever my most recent experience was. It seems like if I had to go in to a deep spot and the tree ended up being really easy to climb, by the time I get back to the truck, my shoulders are sore and I'm thinking, man, I got to, you know, come up with a lighter method. Or if I got, you know, bibs and a big parka packed on, I don't have enough space for sticks and it's like, oh, I got to come up with something more packable for the next time I go out and then. You know, it's just like this constant, this constant flux of change. But yeah, no, I agree with you that sticks definitely seem to be the the best for climbability. But then there, it's not just always climbability. There's always those other things that factor into it.
2: Yeah, yeah. Have you tried spurs?
1: Um, no, uh, but I have tried. Just actually over the last week, I bought a pair of those uh, those Eon Power Climbers used that somebody made the modifications to. Uh, I was going to play around with those. I got uh, written confirmation from both the Wisconsin and the Minnesota DNRs that I can't use spurs on public land down here or up here. Gotcha. So, But the other thing that with spurs always kind of made me nervous is I always got nervous about what I'm going to do with limbs and gaffing out is always kind of a concern. It seemed like as long as people got good sharpened spurs, gaffing out usually isn't too much of an issue and they're comfortable with their method. Um, but the limb thing, I mean, I got some trees, there's some, some of these trees as we get deeper into the swamps where there's just, I mean, it almost becomes hard to even use a lineman's belt because you're constantly going over limbs or you got these little shoots that come off of the tree that are, you know, maybe a couple of feet long, but they're, you know, just all up and down the tree. Um, it can make a system that's dependent on a lineman, uh, rope kind of challenging too.
2: Yeah. Yeah. And at the end of the day, you know, if they, if they say that it's not legal, then, you know, of course, you want to shy away from that, um, that's why that's, I I love the, the method I use, you know, it's it's, it's a Cranford strap on step is, you know, it's it. So perfectly publicly and legal, I, I think it's efficient and effective. And, um, you know, I've even, I prefer not to use a, a screw in bow holder, I keep one with me just in case, uh, but I feel better about it if I don't just because, you know, you're really not supposed to, although everybody does. And I'm right. sure it's not even that big of a deal, but I went to uh, a different tether this year and I just have, uh, you know, it's uh, tubular webbing. So it's just, you know, like a ratchet strap basically. But uh, so I can, I put little clips on there that will house or hold my, uh, my bow and, I just keep a little three inch gear tie on my quiver at all times. And I can just loop that right underneath my tether in between the tether and the tree. And I can hang my pack from that also.
1: Gotcha. So you didn't even have any hooks on there. You just use the night eyes gear tie.
2: On my quiver? Yes.
1: Yeah. I think what I do is pretty similar. I just, I have a strap, one inch strap, but then I have the, uh, the two, two hooks, one for my, one that'll hang my quiver on. I I'll help my quiver on my bow usually, and then one for the pack.
2: Yeah, yeah. There, there's a I'm, there's a lot to be said for using an existing resource, right? Because you're not, not having to carry.
1: Y- yeah, you're basically saying product. you're not you're not uh, having a separate utility strap and tether. It's one and the same for you, right? Exactly. Yeah, so you're more minimalist than I am right now.
2: Utilizing an existing resource.
1: Although one thing you can't do with that uh, that webbing strap is is rappel, which is something I've been I've been trying to look into a little bit recently.
2: Been, oh, really? Been monkeying
1: around with that. Yeah, I saw saw Carl set up and um, intrigued.
2: You gonna try the single stick?
1: Well, I figure if I I don't know, there's there's some places where it would be worth the trade off. Um, my past experience with the single stick is that it's usually not worth the amount of work that it takes to get up the tree and then also back down. Um, but repelling gets rid of the coming back down aspect of it. So then it's just a matter of getting up the tree, which is usually not too bad. It just takes a little bit longer than if I have multiple sticks, but on the longer walks yeah. in, then that trade off might be worth it. So.
2: Yeah. Yeah. I timed myself and I actually GoPro'd it, you know, got video footage of it. Um, when I got to the tree, I started. So, you know, all my stuff's still in my pack. And, you know, when I got to my tree one morning, uh, I timed it. And it took me 13 minutes to climb, I don't know, probably 25 feet in that particular tree. And 13 minutes to be to up 25 feet and completely set up and ready to go.
1: That's not too bad. Yeah, the, uh, no. it, the, uh, the setup for me it always takes longer than the climbing. Usually takes longer than the climbing regardless you know, setting up the camera arm and getting the bow pulled up and everything all situated, putting the extra layers on if needed.
2: Yeah, yeah, oh, the pesky camera gear.
1: (laughs) Yeah, it's a love-hate relationship for sure. Um, I wish I did not have to run a camera arm, and I've got some methods figured out that I don't need to run a camera arm for, but the one thing I still can't get is that nice zoomed-in steady footage when needed. Yeah,
2: yeah. Yeah, I've toted one around with me, the majority of the season, and you know I just don't I don't set it up all the time if it's not ideal. Like you know last Saturday when I killed that ten pointer on that public land where I'd never been, uh, I was in a tree that was too big for my boat buckle strap, and <laughs> the, the last time I was in a tree that was too big for my boat buckle strap was when I killed my other ten pointer, and well, on the trip with you, and on that trip, I tried creating my own loop of paracord to just to bridge the gap, you know, and I thought that I had it, but I was on a cherry tree. And I mean, you know how that cherry tree bark is so hard. Um, I guess I just didn't get a good bite on it or something. And literally when that buck was there at the 10 yards for 10 minutes, the, the bow buckle strap got loose. The camera arm shifted towards me and I was holding it up with my hip (laughs) and Oh, it was, a, it was all this with this buck right there drooling in front of me at 10 yards. And so when I climbed that tree last Saturday and I got up there and I realized how big it was still, I'm like, I'm not even messing with that thing now. And of course, you know, I had a 12-yard encounter and 18-yard shot at a, at a nice 10-pointer. Not on film again, but that's all right.
1: Yeah, it's, yeah, like I said, it's a it's a love-hate relationship. The the thought process was originally when Sam was going to just start filming me this year as she gets kind of up to speed on hunting and asking questions and stuff like that while she tags along with me. And she's been doing obviously a couple of hunts by herself too that I've filmed. But um, I think next year we're probably going to start doing more hunts where maybe she goes solo and we can be more effective in terms of you know hey i'll go to this side of this peninsula you go to that side of the peninsula you know and then we got both exits out of the bed and covered type of thing um so i might end up just getting stuck with you know mostly filming myself anyway
2: yeah that's exactly what tj and i do my son you know we will um just depends on the the setup you know sometimes we'll hunt together and i'll try to film for him or you know like you said we'll split up and you know, try to catch a a bucket exiting, you know, from various points.
1: It does open up it's a whole lot more opportunity people. when you have a second person.
2: Yeah, definitely. Definitely. I'm really trying hard to get, like, get TJ a kill, a spe- specifically a buck kill on camera. That would be really cool.
1: He shot a, a doe earlier this year, right?
2: He's killed three those this year with all with his bow?
1: Okay. Do you guys do any rifle hunting at all, or is it pretty much all bow? I don't. I mean,
2: he he'll go sometimes. Uh, this year it's been even less just because of moving and everything. But so I don't think he has even taken his gun out this year. Um, in the past, like you know, last hunting season, I took a gun out one time. Killed right behind the house with my uh at the time four-year-old with me and killed a nice ten pointer uh but that was the only time i took a gun out all year long and i i probably wouldn't have even shot the deer with the gun except for she was so intense about it and excited but focused excited you know like she was right. like into it and sit, sitting still and you know wanting to blow the grunt tube again and everything and uh, you know, so I, I wanted to reward that with, with shooting that buck that I, I knew he was there, you know, and I'd seen him around quite a bit. Uh, but outside of that, yeah, I'm pretty well archery only.
1: Nice. And you, you changed your setup, um, recently, right. For archery, you got a little bit more, more, uh, in depth and in tune to what your specific setup is.
2: Exactly. And I mean, that's really all it is, is just, you know, understanding it. You know, it doesn't take a, a super high level. I think you said it best before we started recording. It's like, well, you can, you can get as much out of it as you want. Uh, but just a general knowledge, a conceptual knowledge of what you're doing will go so far. You know, I mean, the industry is wrought with all kinds of marketing BS. And not just when it comes to, you know, archery and shooting. And, you know, I mean, there's a, there's a million different things out there that, you know, I just really, when you pair it back, and it just doesn't make a whole lot of logical sense, Uh, but it makes marketing sense and therefore itself. But I think, you know, archery is one of those things. So I would encourage anybody to really start to understand a few uh, core concepts. And, you know, you've been helpful in me understanding that as well with some of the stuff you've done with, Uh, especially with arrow weight, you know, um, I think if if people had a better understanding of, uh, I don't understand it at a super high level to get all the terminology correct. But I think you, you basically did a podcast, the difference between uh, kinetic energy and momentum and momentum being more impactful to getting penetration and uh, basically, you know, to achieve a pass through. Um, but to me it kind of boiled down to, well, I, I want to be able to shoot closer to the shoulder with confidence. Uh, so I moved away from mechanical broadheads a couple of years ago after I had a bad experience and, you know, I had one of the rage hypodermics, like, you know, hit a rib on a steep quartering away shot on a really nice buck and it basically walked on me, I think is the terminology they use. And that that arrow and broadhead just did a one eighty and we're laying on it was laying on the ground facing my tree that I was in and it was nothing more than a flesh wound and I walked I watched the buck walk off and start feeding. So that's kind of what started it, and then there's been this gradual evolution of, you know, going to fixed heads. Well, fixed, vented fixed heads are loud as heck. So I started researching that. So that took me to, uh, uh, you know, a two blade single bevel. And I think that in some of your studies, you, you found that there's probably not much of a difference between single bevel and double bevel, but you know, I, for whatever reason I settled on it, I, I use the kudu heads and I have seen it on two of TJ's kills this year and two of mine. Uh, you know, they, they've been remarkably effective including blasting through the shoulder. Um, the amount of biomass that my arrows at about 475 grains can go through is impressive. And I'm seeing deer drop in, in sight, whereas I didn't see that a whole lot prior.
1: Yeah, and that's always interesting for me, too. I mean, I can do my own testing, but I like hearing from other people you know, in their experiences too, because you're running, you know, basically a more efficient broadhead with it being a two blade, um, and a little bit lighter arrow than what I was using this year, which also had, you know, pretty much the same net result where I was using a little bit, um, less efficient of a blade cutting profile with the bleeders on the head I was using, but I had a much heavier arrow. And one of the reasons too, where I kind of said, it's so hard to differentiate between single and double bevel, at least for whitetails is, you know, they don't necessarily have the same, you know, density, mass of bone that some of that Ashby testing, you know, had used in terms of those like buffalo ribs and things like that. And just kind of anecdotal evidence and observations and, and things like that, it seems like they're they're both very effective. Um and I've even had good results with you know really well built three piece heads um like those bishops I had used. Um, or even like a, a G5 Montech type of design, Magnus Snuffer, um, any you know those cut on contact, small cutting diameter, well built heads on a whitetail sized game. It, it seems like if you have that and you have a you know decently heavy arrow, it, you you have a lot lower likelihood that you get that you know four to six inches of penetration, and you know the deer's fine type of scenario.
2: Yeah, I mean there's just so much energy that's lost in an expandable expanding uh you know i mean uh, it, there's just no way around it um and you know if you talk to enough people about it you're going to talk to people that have had some type of a failure with a mechanical broadhead uh those those crudo heads that i'm shooting it's i've shot them into my 3d glendale target uh, probably 20 to 30 times a few of them and i would be perfectly comfortable with shooting them at a deer they they, they remain that sharp it's impressive
1: yeah. Yeah. It's, it's definitely nice when you can have that kind of confidence that you're, you're going to be able to shoot the exact same head in the exact same condition. And maybe if anything, you hone the blade a little bit, you know, if you feel it's necessary, but to be able to shoot something in a, a target and then pull it out and it still spins, right? Still shaves hair. And you've confirmed to yourself that it's flying exactly how you want it to fly. And it's hitting exactly where you want it to hit without having to use like a, you know, a practice head or something, just kind of, you know, hope and assume that it's going to be the same.
2: I totally agree. You know, you've eliminated a a whole chain of variables there that, you know, it's almost like cutting on contact, right? (laughs) You just eliminated all those variables and that that confidence is exactly what every hunter needs when that big buck walks in. And when that big buck walked in last Saturday, I didn't have the ideal shot that I, you know, sought after when making this change, you know, you know, when he stopped at 18 yards on a steep quartering two, which is exactly, you know, the, the shot that you want with the setup that I've got. Um, the only challenge was, you know, I, I picked a tree, of course it was in the dark that had good foliage on it still, you know, it was a, a red Oak that had just had some small limbs coming off of it. It still had foliage on it. And I, I mean, it was a perfect setup as far as having some camo in the, you know, in the relatively bare timber and, you the only thing about it was that buck stopped right where there was a limb, just a small little limb that was, you know, just a, a tiny limb. Um, and there was a couple of branches out really, but there was one limb specifically that was sticking up at the highest point, And it was right on the shoulder. And I was leaning out as far as I could when I stopped him. And so I, I had to shoot a little bit further back than what I wanted. Uh, so I actually, I, I nicked the very top of the scapula, And I believe what happened was, is just hitting the edge of it actually changed the trajectory of the arrow shaft and actually made it quartering, you know, towards the back end of the, of the offside, uh, even more so than what it was. And so, you know, I got, I got lung, you know, and I went through a lot of lung, uh, because of the steep angle. But, you know, I got like front side lung down through it, about the middle of the lungs and then backside liver. And, you know, it's, it, it did uh, alert me a little bit the way that he reacted. Initially, it was good. He bolted, but he only bolted for about 40 yards, maybe 35 yards. And then he just started walking off. And I'm going to drop a, a YouTube video here in the next couple of days where I don't get the shot on video, of course, but right afterwards I've got the GoPro as I'm looking at him, and you can see him walking off in the distance about 50 yards away. And I didn't have any chance of a follow-up shot or anything. That's why I was able to get it on GoPro, but um, you can see him in the background. And then I watched him just walk off. Um, So fast forward about four hours, you know, after I got down and inspected the arrow and everything, you know, and I thought, you know, we're just better off waiting. And about four hours later, my buddy and I, uh, went back to the shot area and the blood was pretty minimal. And you got to keep in mind that I'm, I'm colorblind. So I have a hard time seeing the blood anyway. And, uh, so I, after a few minutes of, you know, like hands and knees searching and we went about 50 yards with a few drops. Um, you know I, I say that but you know you always have to keep in mind that you have to do your due diligence from the stand and you have to understand every little tiny piece of information that you can garner from the situation and that basically was for an hour i did nothing but glass over in that direction and make sure that i knew exactly where that buck was i retraced his steps in, in my mind so that i know exactly where he was and where where he went and so fast forward again to when we're tracking and we're, and we're not having a whole lot of success finding blood um, you know, I, and you know, that stuff just happens sometimes, but uh, certainly more likely, I think with the uh, you know, the non-mechanical broadheads, but anyway, after a while, I just told my buddy, i like, all right, I'm going to do what I like to do. And that is, I'm going looking for that deer cause I know where he went. And, you know, I kind of just followed the natural path and, you know, 15 minutes later, I, uh, you know, came upon him right in the bottom. And it was a steep ravine, you know, I, I knew by seeing that and knowing that that was there on the top of the maps, that there's no way, because I saw where the arrow hit, there's no way that that buck went down into that bottom and then up the other side of that huge hill, you know. And sure enough, he was right there in the bottom. And he, he was already stiff. So, I mean, he was pretty significantly stiff. Uh, so it told me that he was probably dead, you know, in about an hour after the shot. And in fact, he had already been eaten uh, by the coyotes some. Uh, I couldn't believe that in the middle of the day, Wow! uh, you know, late morning, a coyote stumbled upon him and ate uh, the meat around his ribs. And at first it didn't look too bad, but you know, when I went to, when I was processing him the next day, I mean, he got that, that coyote must've stuck his whole muzzle up in there and, Half the back strap and a third of the front shoulder. Wow. Yeah, yeah, a little disappointing, but
1: yeah, those those know, shot I placements track... are they're tough to judge because I've I've tracked a deer that I shot where it was you know a similar you know quarter slightly quarter two one lung liver that was down totally dead in like probably four or five minutes, and I've also been on the other side where really not that much different of a shot placement, you know, slightly quartering to one long liver where the deers live like eight hours. So it's, yeah, it's just, it's yeah. all over the, it just totally depends. It seems like on what you hit as you went through there, you know, what arteries did you hit? What didn't you hit? All that kind of thing. It's like, if you could know where the arrow was going to hit and where it was going to pass through, man, that would, if you somehow the, had the ability to change what broadhead you had at that eg- exact moment, right? It's all just, yeah, it's a bunch yeah. of trade-offs. Well,
2: Andy May carries both expandables and fixed in the same quiver at all times. And different scenarios will dictate, you know, I mean, if he's hunting from the ground and, you know, he's, it might be some tall grass around or whatever, then he's going to shoot a fixed head. And, uh, you know, if there other scenarios, you know, from a tree or whatever, then, you know, he might be more likely or a longer shot, I think. You know, he might be more likely to go with uh, the expandables. I'd let him speak to that, but I know for a fact that he carries uh, one of, you know, or multiple of each in his quiver,
1: which yeah. I
2: find interesting.
1: Yeah, I, I kind of like that same mentality. I, I think it's 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 probably not a bad thing for the people who you know are willing to go through the work to make sure that all those arrows they know are flying, you know, as they think they should be. I carried multiple different types of broadheads in my quiver this year, but it was more just because I wanted to try a couple different things, not necessarily for, you know, specific scenarios. Um, but I had like a, a sever 1.5 that I ended up shooting coyote with. Um, and then that iron will is what I shot the buck with Missouri with. And then I shot the North Dakota buck with a, with the Bishop. But I, I think it does make sense. If you want to have a very ultra specific set of arrows in your quiver, it's like you could have a fixed blade with feathers if you knew you're going to be hunting like on the ground and grass, right. To help minimize the chance that you're going to catch up or get a deflection or something, if you're going to be a longer, maybe a high wind shot and then maybe put on a fob and a mechanical, right. There's, you could definitely dive down that rabbit hole.
2: Yeah. Yeah, definitely.
1: Yeah. It was, uh, it was
2: interesting to see that, you know, that, that quarter and two shot that I wasn't able to hug that shoulder as much as I like, but you know, it was still a very effective shot, even though there wasn't a whole lot of blood. Now, I wish I would have had the opportunity, you know, by the time we found it and we had to get this buck out of there. It, you know, it's, oh my gosh, we were, you know, three miles back there and it was, uh, you know, I mean, it was a lot of work. We got out right at dark, but I wish I would have had the opportunity to, to backtrack and see what that blood trail did look like. But unfortunately, it just didn't have that opportunity
1: yeah i'm in the same boat as you i oftentimes if i know where the deer went i don't even bother with the blood trail just go walk over and and get them
2: yeah definitely now whenever my son is with me you know i don't feel nearly as bad because we have our system and and you know if it gets hairy like that then he will be the one that searches for blood uh very intently and i will be the one that goes Ahead and you know searches and just uses woodsmanship to find the deer. That's typically what happens. But this uh buddy of mine that was hunting with me—it's the first time we'd hunted together. I did feel a little bit bad, so I I tried trailing more than what I normally would have because I wasn't going to be like, hey, uh, why don't you look on your hands and knees for that <laughs> blood trail while I go down here and find that buck, right? Right. <laughs> But eventually after trying for a while, I'm like, all right, I got to, I know what I have to do here. So I just told him, have your phone on you. And it was about 15 minutes later. I called him.
1: Nice. So what are your plans for next year? Any out of state trips or are you basically going to kind of do the same thing you did this year? Well, I'm not done yet.
2: Uh, Clayton bond is coming to town next weekend. And we're going to hit up some local public land, uh, probably head down some of the same area where we were in November and we're going to hunt pretty hard next weekend. That'll be my big last hurrah minus a few, you know, going around the house and everything for this year. And then next year, I don't know. Um, hopefully go elk hunting in Montana. Um, not sure if that'll happen or not, but you know, anytime you can get out there and chase the bugle is, uh, (laughs) it's a good time. And it's, it's been a couple of years since I've done it. So I'd love to get back. Well, I guess I didn't do it this year, but I went the year before last, but I uh, can't wait to get back out there. And then, yeah, I don't know, you know, I went to Michigan for the public land challenge this year um, without a public land challenge there. I doubt I'll go to Michigan. Uh, not, you know, nothing wrong with it, but uh, if I'm going to, you know, spend vacation, I probably won't go
1: to Michigan the first week in October. Uh, but
2: it was really enjoyable doing that for the public land challenge, of
1: course. That was a totally so different habitat type for you, right?
2: Oh yeah, yeah. i would never hunted swamps or marshes before, ever.
1: Yeah, that's but a little bit it what it looks like in my neck of the woods.
2: Yeah, yeah. That's. I mean, I watch videos on it all the time, uh, but you know, it's definitely a different beast. So, mm-hmm. you know, I mean, I I feel like even up there, you know, in that all new terrain, I mean, there was no shortage of mature buck sign at all. I mean, I feel like we had reasonably good setups every time out. Uh, Grant McCrabb followed me around for a couple of days. And I mean, we covered some ground, put in the, put in the work for sure. And, you know, we had, uh, we were around mature bucks every time out, um, in deer every time out and You know, just we're never able to get it done. But it was a lot of fun learning the new terrain and everything. Um, I'd like to go to Kansas. Really would like to go to Kansas around, you know, right after Thanksgiving time frame. That would be a lot of fun. Might have to try to secure that one for next year.
1: Yeah, let me know what you think about that if you end up getting it done because Kansas is on my – um, well, I guess I should say on my long list, it's, um, definitely something that I'm open to trying at some point.
2: Yeah. Yeah. Uh, my buddy that was with me on Saturday that was tracking my, my buck with me, he has a, uh, I, you know, he doesn't live in Kansas anymore, but he bought a lifetime resident of Kansas hunting license and, and he's pretty familiar with the area. So he's trying to talk me into, into going and. I could definitely see making that one happen. It'd be a lot of fun.
1: Nice. Well, cool, man. Is there anything else that you want to talk about while you're on the podcast?
2: Well, I was just thinking earlier, I thought about making a post about it. Uh, so probably, I can just bring it up now. Uh, it, you know, I'm always interested in, you know, Hey, what's like, what's the one, the one thing that you did this year? The one thing you tweaked or the one piece of gear, and I got to tell you, I've, I've utilized the e-bike this year for the first time. And it, I, you know, the word game changer" is thrown out there all the time, of course, you know, but it was a game changer. It really was. It was, it just made it so much more fun. I mean, for hunting around the house, uh, not having to get up and, you know, put all your stuff in the vehicle and then drive and park on the side of the road where everybody can see you and, you know, just the whole, you know, your, your vehicle being cold, all that stuff, you know, uh, waiting for it to warm up. I just keep my e-bike in my garage. I had my system to where it was just, you know, my pack is there. My e-bike is there. My bow is strapped in my e-bike and ready to go. All I had to do is get dressed in camo and go. Uh, and nobody knows that I'm hunting there. So that way the You know if it's around the house then you know the uh the landowners don't have to deal with other people like oh can i hunt here too all this and that and on public land the advantages are obvious and that is you know we were able to get back there um three miles deep and be set up you know well before it got light on saturday and paid off big time and same thing for, you know, the hunt where I killed the 10 pointer when, when we were with you guys, I was, shoot, I probably was, by the time I got there after moving, after the morning hunt, I was probably four miles, deep, maybe even more than that. And that's just, it's difficult to do by foot. It can be done, but you're talking hours, not
1: minutes. Right. Well, do you think even from a scouting perspective. I mean, that first whole day that Sam and I walked around, we could have done that whole loop in about an hour, you know, had we had e-bikes that day.
2: Yeah. Yeah. It allows you to just fly through the areas that you you don't, you know, you're not interested in. Yep. Those big monotonous forests, right?
1: And remind me, did you have a bought e-bike all ready to go or did you do a kit from an existing either a fat tire or a mountain bike? Uh, I
2: basically piggyback off of Carl's idea, and that is, you know, we we bought kind of like a, oh, I guess you'd say the the smaller Rambo, the Rambo 750, and then we upgraded the motor and uh, several of the components to be a much more robust and beefier um, bike that's capable of handling the Ozark hills.
1: Okay, gotcha.
2: So, for example, you know, it comes with a 46 tooth front sprocket we replace that out with a 30 and that, you know, that really gives you a lot more torque to be able to climb those steep hills that, uh, you know, can really make or break it, whether or not you're going to actually get back to
1: it. Oh yeah, definitely. I'd, I'd rather, especially when most of the regulations on them say you can't exceed X speed anyway, it's like, well, you don't really need the top end speed. You'd much rather have the torque to be able to go uphill or, or drag things. Exactly. Exactly. Especially when you
2: Giving a big bucket e-bike ride.
1: And those are all mid-drives that you guys are using? Yes. Okay. Yeah.
2: Now, you know, I think some of the guys that were on that trip had the, uh, um, not the mid-drive. The, the hub, hub motor? Uh, the hub drive, yeah. Uh, I You know, I think you really needed a mid-drive to get that, that, not only the torque, but the, the direct power
1: yeah yeah I definitely didn't have any complaints with the either of the ones that I rode um, and you know played around with when we were down there um, the one was much heavier than the other which I thought was interesting but I think it was because mostly the frame was beefier and probably meant to be able to handle a little bit more beating
2: yeah I noticed those newer rainbows they seemed a lot higher than mine uh, I thought I would like that at first but then I, I'm not so sure that I quite had the maneuverability that I'm accustomed to, but it might just be that I'm used used to mine, you know?
1: Right, right. Yeah, that could be. I, any which way you
2: slice it. It's, uh, they're a valuable tool.
1: Yeah, for sure. Up here, I could even get some use out of one on the, uh, on the hard water, going out ice fishing on early ice before you can drive a vehicle out.
2: I, I was thinking that when we were texting about that the other day or, or poloing about
1: it. Yeah. Yeah, it'd be uh you just want to put some, probably some studded. I mean the the fat tires themselves if you just deflate them so they're low air pressure, if there's snow, they'll go just fine over that. If you're on glare ice, you'd probably want to run studded tires which I think cost a little bit more.
2: Yeah, but just, you know, being able to zip out there with with little weight and, you know, it's just so convenient. Uh, you know, just like I said, you know, the the places you can park an e-bike uh are for as far as hunting goes, you know, are significantly greater than where you can pull your vehicle off or, oh, yeah. you know, if you have to park, you know, in a designated lot or whatever, you know, and, uh, yeah, you just, you have a lot more options and it's just a, it's a lot more stealthy and, you know, like you can, you can wear the clothes that you're going to hunt in to the stand because you're parking close to your stand. You know, it, it Used to, when I was pedaling it all the way back, you know, you'd get all hot. So you had to carry all of your clothes, you know, on your cart or on your pack or whatever. And then, you know, it just adds a whole other level to it.
1: Yeah. I, For my fat tire bike that is non-motorized, just trying to use it this year, if you don't have a a nice hard pack trail to be able to ride on, I usually ended up expending more energy riding the bike. Granted, I would get there a lot faster, but I was... I would sweat much quicker on the bike than I would if I was just walking, uh, just because you're constantly balancing going over, you know, tree roots and this, that, and the other thing. And, and, uh, I almost kind of came to the conclusion that if it's not powered, it's almost easier for me to just walk, you know, even though it took longer.
2: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, for years I would use this a regular mountain bike, but I could see where your point there the fat tires it just takes a lot more um to get them going yeah
1: they're you not know, they're, more they're not efficient on rough terrain and their rolling friction is so high that they don't really coast It's like you constantly got to bend the pedals to get those things you know to keep them moving
2: yeah, definitely definitely for years uh, TJ and I would just use the regular mountain bikes though and uh, you had know, to pull behind cart. And, you know, I've given a bunch of deer a ride out in that thing and <laughs> it's all leg power there. Yeah. <laughs> but it's still a way to, you know, you don't have to have an e-bike. There's always a creative way to set yourself apart from all the other hunters that are doing the same thing that everybody else is doing.
1: Yep, absolutely. That's the key to success a lot of times. Yeah. Yeah, Definitely. So you mentioned briefly your YouTube channel, um, for people who want to check in on what you're doing, is it, you have the hunt fit Ted YouTube channel, right? Is there any other places where you have, you know, social media content that if people want to follow your stuff, they can.
2: Yeah. Yeah. Thanks for asking. It is hunt fit Ted on YouTube. Uh, I do a lot of, uh, you know, the adventure style hunting, uh, and some, you know, tutorials on saddle hunting and such. And uh, you know some periodic gear reviews and then you know i also incorporate you know scouting uh you know fishing videos in the spring and summer and a few various other just outdoor adventure types of stuff and um yeah on on facebook just ted bright and on instagram it is teddy bright 21 so feel free to uh like follow comment along
1: Awesome. Well, I think we had a good discussion. I really appreciate you ha- or appreciate having you on.
2: No problem. I appreciate you asking me to come on and let me know if you'd ever like to do
1: it again. we Will do. That'll do it for this episode. As always, make sure to follow the Sportsman's Nation on Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube. Leave us a review on iTunes. And if you're looking for additional content from Bobby Boswell or myself, subscribe to DIY Sportsman and Boudreaux Boswell on YouTube. And with that, thanks for listening.